All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. Lord willing, we'll finish chapters 22 and 23 tonight. We'll just see how that goes. So tonight we're going to be looking at the reign of Josiah, and Josiah, along with Hezekiah, were perhaps two of the greatest kings Israel ever had, in addition to David and uh, perhaps even Solomon. Although Solomon didn't end well, he certainly began well. But I want you to know that every one of these kings, even the exemplary kings like Hezekiah and, and certainly Josiah, they all had their moments, and uh, that ought to be encouraging to you because sometimes when we read in the Scripture uh, these different kings and, and the things that they did and how God used them, it's very easy for us to put them up on a pedestal, and it's really never a good idea to put anyone other than Christ on a pedestal because everyone has their moments, uh, even the most godly among us, you know, uh, put in the right position and under the right circumstances, and you can find yourself being inconsistent, perhaps, and it, it is true that it takes time. You know, once we are in Christ, it takes time. It takes time, and, and sanctification is a process, and it's going to be a process that's going to begin from the moment you're born again until the moment the Lord takes you home or until the rapture of the church occurs, whichever occurs first, it's going to be a process. And be patient with yourself, and even though you may hunger and thirst for righteousness, what is the promise? You'll be filled. And, and just let the Lord work in you and don't get upset about how somebody else looks because we're, we're very good as human beings of looking externally like everything is going well. And everybody does it. Everybody doesn't want to put on the reality of who they are when they walk out in the morning. But the truth of the matter is, uh, regardless of the facade that somebody may put up, there, there's something going on in their life. There might be some issue that they're wrestling with. And, and so it's never good for us to compare one another. But Josiah was an amazing, an amazing king. And in fact, up until the very end of his life, there's nothing recorded of him that's derogatory. In fact, the Lord had some really stellar remarks to say about him. And although he wasn't the last king of Judah, uh, Josiah was the last king of great prominence who had real glory, and he enjoyed a very long reign. And the Lord perhaps used this man uh, because he had a great character. The Lord had been working that into him, and, um, and the Lord forbear or forbore his judgment against Judah for her many sins of idolatry because of this man and how he turned Israel or, or turned Judah around. And he reigned for 31 years, and, and God extended great grace to Judah before he would finally allow them to be taken, in, taken into captivity by the Babylonians and, and destroyed to a great extent. But Josiah was Judah's last star, last rising star to stand for righteousness before it would plunge into darkness. This is the last Time And remember, Israel, the northern ten tribes, already in captivity. And now, some 116 years later, Judah is getting ready. After Josiah passes from the scene, there's 31 years of grace. And then after Josiah dies, it's, it's, it's an immediate plummet, and they never recover, and then they're taken captive. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to, to read, certainly, 
But God seems to have his figures throughout history, doesn't he? When a nation or, um, you know, is floundering or being led down a path to destruction, God has people, great men of courage, men filled with the Spirit of God who, who rise up, and, and God always has people like this. And, and I love it when it happens because Judah was, was plummeting, and then all of a sudden we had Hezekiah, who was a pretty decent king, and then Ammon was pathetic, and then Manasseh was bad, and then he started good, but then, and then finally, you know, now we have this really great king, and it's the last pinnacle before they would plunge. And um, there are many parallels here uh, as we look in First and Second Kings, as we've been looking through them, many parallels with what's going on in America, because America started off well and uh, it's floundering. Right now, it's in a very bad place, and and uh, you know it's really up to the church. It's up to you and I to to live the way God would want us to live and to and to do the things that God would want us to do. It's time for the church in America to wake up. It's time for us to really press in, unlike any other time in history. Not only because we believe that Christ is coming for the church sometime very soon, but we also see those signs uh, all around us. But things aren't going well, folks. And the Bible doesn't promise America that it's going to have some kind of you know, uh, resurrection from what we're going through. It, it doesn't say anything about it. But it doesn't say that a lot about a lot of other things either. It's mainly a book about Israel. It's mainly a book of redemption. But we see similar parallels. So tonight we're going to look at a curated chronological tour. We're going to take a a view through the reign of Josiah. And I'm going to put some scriptures on the screen. And um, we're going to go through each of these seven different um, um, passages. So you might want to write those down, take a picture of them, uh, get it on the podcast in a few days, however you want to do it. But this is really a, um, there's two, actually four different chapters specifically that really speak to Josiah's reign, uh, chapter 22 and 23, which we're going to look at tonight, but also Second Chronicles 33 and uh, uh, 34. And uh, 34 and 35, excuse me, and uh, those give us a, the larger uh, understanding of his reign. Now, there's a lot of redundancy in, in those chapters, so what I'm hoping to do tonight is to go through these scriptures, and they are in chronological order, and just go through and look at this man's life and, and, and all the things that he did, how, how he restored the, the worship in Jerusalem, how the Passover that he had done had, it was like unlike any other in any other time. It was just extraordinary, um, and it was a great revival for Israel. And then finally, in, in, in a foolish act, Josiah loses his life in a battle that God didn't tell him to get involved in. And, and I say that because, again, he a great man, but he had his moment, he had his moment where he did something foolish. And um, I don't know about you, but if I read about somebody's life and all I saw was the good, I, I would kind of get discouraged. Um, I'm glad to know that even though this man had a stellar character, that you know, there were, he had his moments. And, um, but it still does not take away from... Uh, the glory of this man and what a wonderful king he was. With that in mind, turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 34, and um, 
You're going to be moving around a lot, and you can see the scriptures on the screen. So I'm just going to, we're going to go in this order, but we're going to read through these passages, and I'm going to comment on it as we go along, just to kind of give you a broad uh, understanding of this man's life and reign, and apply it to our lives as much as we can, because that's one of the things that we like to do in Bible study. It's not just about history, and not just about what the Bible, uh, the, the plan of redemption, but it's also applicable to us, and there's nuggets that we can get out of it. So notice in Second Chronicles 34, beginning in verse 1, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So, we have this young man who was eight years old when he began to reign. I mean, think about that. I mean, the guy, he's still playing with Tonka trucks, and he's still playing with, you know, uh, Legos. I mean, he's eight years old. And his reign, 640 to 609 B.C., 31 years, what an amazing reign that he had. And certainly Josiah, even as a young boy coming into his kingship, so young, he certainly had counselors and men around him that would help him during his young years. People that would um, come alongside of him and, you know, uncles and other men that would stand with him and help him. And one thing that you got to understand, or something that's interesting to understand, is during his reign, Jeremiah and Zephaniah began to prophesy. So as you read the prophet Jeremiah, as you read Zephaniah, it's around this time period, around Josiah's lifetime, that these prophets began to prophesy. Obviously prophesying to Judah, telling them of impending judgment if they did not repent. And the overarching uh, theme of Jeremiah's uh, writings, his prophecy, is bringing Israel, or Judah to task, telling them exactly what they did wrong and what God was going to do. And then the hope that God was going to restore them to their land after they spent 70 years uh, for their punishment in Babylon, he would ultimately bring them back. And so um, these two prophets, along with others like Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and Zephaniah, are known as pre-exilic prophets. If you ever hear that word pre-exilic or um, exilic prophets or post-exilic prophets, what it's basically talking about is prophets that prophesied before Judah or Benjamin, or I'm sorry, Israel or Judah went into captivity. And so now we're looking at um, before um, Judah would go into captivity. So Jeremiah and Zephaniah, Isaiah um, and Amos, Hosea, Zephaniah, these are all pre-exilic prophets. They prophesied of the impending doom coming upon them if they didn't repent. And aren't you glad that God, he makes sure to hold us accountable you know, before he lets the hammer fall, he makes sure that you understand what you're doing, <laughs> what you've done wrong, and he even gives you space to repent. And if you repent, all is well. And God could have averted this judgment of Babylon, and, I, and Jeremiah was crying out to God. And there came a point in Jeremiah 7, and I think it also happened in chapter 14, whereas Jeremiah is interceding for Judah, and God says, Jeremiah, don't pray anymore. Can you imagine God telling you not to pray? He says, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people anymore. It's done. They've crossed the line, and isn't that scary? 
When you've crossed the line, that means you've disobeyed God for so long and for so hard, and your will was such that you just you didn't care about God at all. And that's, that's a heart and a mind that is gone. And there's a point where God allows you to have that, to have what you want so bad, and that is a life without God. And even nations, he allowed the nation, when it got so bad, he's like, Jeremiah, don't even pray for them any longer. Judgment is coming, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. We're even going to see tonight, even though Josiah rose to this, he was a great man, a great reformer king, and even though it was really great and he was doing the right things, God's, God told him, judgment's coming, but I'm going to wait until you're gone, Josiah. Because of your heart toward me, I'm going to wait until you have passed from the scene, and then it's going to come, and it certainly did. And so we'll take a look at that. Now notice also in 2 Kings uh, 21, verse 1, you don't have to go there, but it, it mentions that his mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. How do you like those names, ladies? How would you like to have a, na- have a name like Jedida? Um, but anyway, uh, his, Josiah's mother's name was, uh, was that. And I love how as we go along, and I haven't really mentioned it up until this point that there have been different kings that have been mentioned as we've been going along, and their mothers are also mentioned in the biblical record. And I love that because God knows where his people came from, and the record is clear. It's almost as if God is anticipating when those who hate God and hate his word would seek to confuse or deceive people that this was somehow a different Josiah. They did this with Isaiah. That They're doing it with the book of Genesis. They did it with the book of Daniel. They're trying to confuse people and say these really aren't the real people. And God makes sure that you understand that there's, this man is from a certain man and a certain woman, very clear who it was. There's no mistake of who this man is. And God, I love that he anticipates the higher critics. <laughs> and he comes after it and he tells you exactly who this man is. Who his dad is is irrefutable. Who his mother is is irrefutable as well. Now, going on in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 2, it says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, when it speaks of his father, of course, in the immediate, we know that his father was really Ammon, right? Because we read about him last week. But when it speaks of his father, it speaks of uh, his father David, it's mentioning him as his ancestor because this word that is used and called father, it's called Ab, where we get the word Abba for father. It means Ab, and it can mean in, in the immediate sense, like um, you know, his father was Ammon, or figuratively in a remote sense, like David was his ancestor going back, his father going way, going way back a couple hundred years but notice again the, the benchmark, the comparison to David's reign. All of these kings have been related back to David because David had a right heart toward God. Now, what was he without fault? Was he without fault? No, he had faults. We know he created some, did some pretty bad things, but did he repent? Yes, he did. And did he have a heart after God's own heart? Yes, he did. Was he the sweet psalmist of Israel? Yes, he was. A wonderful king, a wonderful king after God's own heart. And he says, Josiah is just like him. He's just a wonderful man. Now, 
Immediately after those two verses, um, go to 2 Kings chapter 23. You might want to keep your finger or a, a bookmark in 2 Chronicles 34 because we're going to come back there. 2 Kings 23, verses 26 and 27. And, and this is really a, uh, a reality check and also God speaking of impending doom even in spite of Josiah's wonderful reign. Notice what it says in verse 26 of 2 Kings 23. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with, with which he, his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. So even though Manasseh had repented while he was in captivity in Babylon and returned to his throne, God was going to still judge Judah for its idolatry. God was going to be faithful to what he had said in Deuteronomy concerning the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And Manasseh's son, Ammon, would continue in the idolatry of his father and further bring calamity upon Judah. And again, there is a place in the life of an individual, of a nation, where they cross that line. And this is why it's important, even for us. Now, we don't have to worry about our salvation if we're believers. But see, I don't want to live a life uh, like Judah or like Israel, where I flirted with the line. Where, where's the line? How far can I go before God drops the hammer on me? Never live a life like that. Never live a life with that mindset. In fact, it would be better as Christians, even as Christians, even though we know we're going to glory, don't flirt with sin. Don't flirt with that line. Wherever you think that line is, it might be shorter than you think. <laughs> and you, 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 may, you may be going to heaven if your life gets cut short, but there, there are people... That, 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 I, that I know who are believers and there were issues in their life and they just didn't get them under control and God allowed their life to be cut short because of their sin. And I have no doubt that they're in glory but God is like, he's saving the soul because the sin was so great and they just weren't ready and weren't, something was happening and it just, they weren't ready to get rid of it and it can be destructive but remember that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And, I, and he leads us in pasture, in the good pasture. He leads us in good places. And so don't flirt with that line. Stay away from the edge. Stay far away from the edge. Live your life like the edge is the worst thing because it really is the worst thing. Don't flirt with the edge, even as believers. Stay away from it. Live a life consecrated to Christ. Amen? And so verse 27, And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. So the Jews thought that God would never touch Jerusalem or the temple. Um, uh, they had this false sense of security apart from obedience. But here God is saying that he's going to cast it away. He's going to cast it away. In fact, God said this, and let me just read this to you. It's in 2 Kings 21, beginning in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he's acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and also has made Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both 
of his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. Why? Because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. That is the reason. But God would have compassion on his people. Even in spite of their debauchery and their sin, God would have compassion on them and not push them away forever. He would restore them to their land and ultimately bless them. There's so many scriptures in the Old Testament that speak of God bringing his remnant, the Jews, out from the lands from which they were taken captive. Even in, from 70 AD when they were dispersed all throughout, the, all throughout the world and he brought them back in 1948. That was a partial prophecy of, of, of some of these uh, scripture passages. And I'd just like to read one to you. In Jeremiah 32, it says this, God having compassion on them, even in spite of their sin. Now therefore, uh, this is Jeremiah 32, verse 36. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, of which you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them, notice this, out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath, I will bring them back to this place. I will cause them to dwell safely. Does that sound like a God who just wanted to squash them like a bug and be done with them? No, he, he caused them to go into captivity, but his heart was always to bring them back Because he had made promises to David. He had made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God was going to be faithful to his promise. And even as he was faithful to that promise that he gave to those men, he's also going to be faithful to the things that he said to them, that if they didn't obey, they would be punished. And if they obeyed, they would have blessings. God was going to be faithful to that as well, in the midst of that bigger overarching uh, promise that he had made. He says, I'm going to bring them back and they will dwell safely. They shall be my people. I will be their God. And then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them. And that's God's heart. For the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them from doing good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord God, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Isn't that awesome? I don't know about you, but I, I love the promises of God because even in his wrath, he has promises and his heart is for good, and he's going to bring them back. So go to Second Chronicles. You had your finger there. Go back to uh, chapter 34, Second Chronicles. We're going to finish uh, in verses 3 through 7 now. Notice in verse 3 it says, For in the eighth year of Josiah's reign, so if he started when he was eight years old and now we're eight years into his reign, what does that make him? 16 years of old, you got it. So for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the 12th year, so that means he's 20 now, right? 
He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. Now, notice how he sought the Lord while he was young. And for those of you who are in earshot of this or are here tonight, if you're a young person, <laughs> notice that while he was 20 years old, what are uh, some 20-year-olds, what are they doing today? But this young man, he had a heart after God. He loved the scripture. He loved God and he loved to do the right things. And what a marvelous miracle that is. When I was 20 years old, I was a rotten, filthy, scoundrel beast. And here this man at 20 is tearing down the things that his grandfather and his great-grandfather, the wickedness that they had done. He did it because God touched his heart. He had a different heart. Let me ask some of the young people who who are going to hear this. Are you looking for love? Are you looking for forgiveness? Are you looking for grace and adventure? What young person doesn't want love and adventure? And even grace and forgiveness. If you do, then come to Christ. Because let me tell you something about walking with Christ. That life is an adventure. It's a wonderful adventure. You'll never be bored if you're walking with him. If you're really serious about your walk with him, your life will never be boring. And I can tell you, my life is not boring I love my life now more than I've ever did, but it's not without trial and tribulation. And now I know for the first time in all of my life, I am very alive because when one day I'm smiling and I'm excited and the next day I'm on on my carpet in my office weeping like a child, something is happening. And I gotta be honest with you, in the last 24 hours I've gone through that, that roller coaster. As I was sharing with you, you know, hearing of the... Uh, of the of the murders down there in in that Christian school, it broke my heart in a million pieces. For more than one reason, found myself weeping, laying flat on my stomach in, the, in my office, just crying. And then getting good news <laughs> that the Lord spoke to somebody and gave us a huge lump sum of money for our. And we talked about this earlier. You know, for, for the, the security things and other things that we need to do. And it was a complete amazement. And then I'm up on cloud nine again. And then down in the depths. Life in, in Christ can often be like that. It's very rarely to mind the clouds all the time. I would have liked to have stayed on that. I would have liked to have remained up on that puffy cloud and just kind of float for a couple weeks, to be honest with you. But God allowed me a few moments. And there, there's more moments I'm still thanking God for what he did. And I'll still rejoice in it for weeks to come, months to come. But notice back in verse 4, notice what he did at 20 years old. He broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars which were above them he cut down and the wooden images, these these Canaanite goddess images that they would make of Asherah, this female Canaanite goddess of fertility. He broke those down. He broke down the carved images, the molded images. He broke in pieces. He made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem and so we did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. 
And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Notice that he initiated this at 20 years old. In the 12th year of his reign, he did that. Prompted by the Spirit, would to God that more young people would initiate these kinds of things in the church within its walls and outside, and especially outside of it. You know, young people, get behind it. Get behind it. Get your heart involved and live life. Live life with a purpose, and the greatest purpose is for Jesus, not for anything else. There's no greater thing you can do with your life than to give it to him and be completely sold out to Christ. I wish I had come to Christ earlier. It would have saved me a mountain full of hurts and pains and memories that I would love to forget that are etched in my memory forever. I would love to forget all of those things. Go now with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to pick up in verse 3. Because remember, so now we talked about what he did when he was, you know, uh, at 16 years old, then at 20 years old. Now we're going to be looking at what he did when he was 26 years old. 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 3. What does it say? It came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So this is around 622 BC. Josiah would be 26 years old. That the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, and the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord. And this is what he said. Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Now, if you remember, back um, about 200 years prior to this, there was a king of Judah by the name of Joash. And he put a chest, if you remember, with a hole in the top of it, just like the one we have over there for our offerings up on that wall. He put a chest with a hole in it, and he set it outside of the altar where people would come and they would put money in it, and it would be to help upkeep the temple and, and, the, and the services and everything of that nature. And that's why we do what we do. I like the idea of having put, you put things in there because it's, it's what they did here. And so they gather this money, and, and notice what he, jo, uh, Josiah goes on, and he tells them, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to the carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. So remember that Manasseh, his great-grandfather, was king for 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did a lot of damage to Jerusalem and to the house of God with his idolatry. And Ammon, Manasseh's son, he only reigned for two years and was evil, so Josiah had a lot of work to do to restore Jerusalem, to restore the house of God that had been completely left in disarray and disrepair. He's got a lot of work to do. However, verse 7, there needed to be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. And I, I noticed the trust that was between Josiah and the priesthood and these laborers. There was a, a camaraderie. There was a, a heart trust. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to trust people? Because today I find that you really can't trust people. <laughs> trust is something that's earned, isn't it? Well, I'm a Christian. You, ha you have to trust me. And when people tell me that line, I say, that immediately makes me not trust you. 
Because when you tell me that I have to trust you, it's probably because you got something up your sleeve. No, trust is earned. It's a fruit of your faithfulness. You trust somebody because you've examined their life. You've watched what they do. You don't see any bad thing. And then trust is earned. And as time goes on, that trust gets bigger and bigger. And that's why husbands and wives, that we should never betray the trust of our spouses because you can live for several years and be just fine and say one thing, do one thing, and totally undermine the trust of your spouse. And it takes a long time to rebuild it again. So important for us to be faithful and when we fail, we confess it as sin, right? And God forgives us and we move on. And, but just be patient with everybody else around you because, because of the fact that you blew it, you've got to rebuild that trust and that takes time. Don't expect everybody just to drop everything and say, oh, we trust you again. Didn't happen. You can forgive them, but trust is something that takes time to rebuild. Follow me? It's true, whether we like it or not. Um, and so verse 8, So Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, he says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I, you know, you think about this church. You know, we got Bibles laying around everywhere, and now they found one book of the law. <gasps> they found a book of the law. We found it. There's one. And they're doing their garage sale and all the stuff that they're doing and throwing all these boxes and junk out of the temple and all these idols. And, oh, we found a book of the law. Can't believe it. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And these would be the scrolls of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they had. That's all they had, folks. So Shaphan the scribe, he went to Josiah the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now notice what happens. And again, this is when he's 26 years old, in the 18th year of his reign. Do you remember what we just read a few moments ago? That it was in the 20th year that he started really doing these things for the Lord, cleaning out all the idolatry. But now, six years later, now he reads the word of God. Can you believe that? Think about that. I, I could understand him reading or having the book of the law read at this point and then for having him engage and finally do it. But he did this before he read it. Before the book was found, God had already touched his heart. He didn't need the, the scrolls to do what God was going to do. Do you follow? But now, six years later, after he did all these wonderful things, the words of the book of, law, of the law are read to him, and he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. And I find it interesting that even though he was a king, he was supposed to have written his own copy of the law and had it with him. And now he's 18 years into his reign and it's never happened. This is evidently the first time he's seen the whole thing. In Deuteronomy, it tells us in chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, listen to this. 
He says, when you, and God's speaking to the children of Israel, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you. And he goes on and he says, you, you shall not multiply horses to yourself or cause uh, people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. You're not supposed to have multiple wives. Lest, his heart, lest they turn his heart away. And then it says also in verse 18, and also it shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, notice this, this is what every king was supposed to do, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book for the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord as God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Why? That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And so now, 18 years after his reign began, Finally, now, there's a copy that they found. It's remarkable. And then the king, verse 12, commanded Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, Achbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Azaiah, a servant of the king. And this is what he said to them, go inquire of the Lord for me. What a wonderful thing to do. Inquire of the Lord for me. Go seek the Lord for me. And certainly he sought the Lord for himself. But he said, go seek, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all, uh, for, for, for the people and all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that has aroused against us because our fathers did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Again, notice he inquired of the Lord. He sought prayer and guidance from the Lord. What a great idea. Are you seeking the Lord for your life? Are you inquiring of the Lord for your life and for the life of your kids and your grandkids? Are you inquiring of the Lord? Did you inquire of the Lord today and ask him? Very important to inquire of the Lord. David did that. There were times when David did those things and and, uh, when he was against the Philistines, he attacked them a certain way and everything went stunningly well. God told him to do it. He was obedient and cleaned house. And then the very next day, they went to war with them again and, and David didn't presume that he should go down into the valley to do the exact same thing as he did the day before. It says that he inquired of the Lord a second time, Lord, what should I do? And God says, ah, that's a great heart of yours, David. The temptation would be just to go down and do, you know, slaughter 2.0, you know. I did it the day before the same way. I'm going to do it the same. No, and David says, he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord says, all right, now do this. I want you to do something else. I have a different battle plan for you. And he gave it to him, and he was wildly successful. Why? Because he obeyed the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. Such victory and stability when we inquire of the Lord. We can't forget that. We must remember to inquire of the Lord. Always. So, verse 14, Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim, Akbor, Shaphan, Azahiah, they went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, 
keeper of the wardrobe, and, and she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Now, why they didn't speak to Zephaniah or Jeremiah, we don't really know, because they were prophets and prophesied during this time. But they, they spoke to her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity. Now notice, this is Josiah. He's sending these, this delegation to her, and, and, and she tells him, Thus says the Lord. And the Lord is using her to speak. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Ouch. Because they've forsaken me, they've burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Notice that. It's not going to make a difference. Josiah, I love you, and you're doing a great job. I'm going to wait until your reign because, brother, you have done everything my heart's desire. And I'm not going to allow this calamity to happen on your watch. I'm going to wait until you're done, and then the hammer is going to fall. And that's exactly what God was, going to, was saying. And it wasn't going to be annulled, but the timing of the judgment was in forbearance as long as Josiah lived. Verse 18, But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. So now he's speaking, God is speaking directly to Josiah. He says, Because your heart was tender. And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against all its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and that you tore your clothes and you wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. It's like he was irresistible. Again, God, it seems to be, it's irresistible for him to see a man or a woman who's humble, who really loves him and really wants all that God has for them. And, and, and when they break down and they're crying or they're in, in deep straits, God loves to show up, and he does. I've noticed it in my own life, and he's done it in your life too. But I love God uh, that he does that. In Psalm 34, it says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And here it is, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves those such as have a contrite spirit. And God is saying, Josiah, because you humbled yourself, you tore your clothes, you wept before me, I have heard you. Do you have that confidence that when you pray to God that he's hearing you? Sometimes we don't, do we? Because our prayers can be so monotonous, they can be so uh, flippant, and sometimes they can be irreverent, quite honestly. We forget who it is that we're standing before or kneeling before. We forget who God is. And I think it's healthy to really think of him because he is more than a king. He's the king of kings. He's the one we're going to stand before one day and probably not do a whole lot of standing, probably more like on our face. Prostrate before him. In James 4, it says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Verse 20, back in our text, it says, surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers. In other words, Josiah, you're going to die. 
When, and when you die, you shall be gathered, gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought back word to the king. In 2 Kings chapter 20, the Lord had a similar thing that he did to Hezekiah, Josiah's great great, or his great grandfather, excuse me. And God told Hezekiah that he would uh, deliver him from the king of Assyria. He'd give him 15 more years. But it wouldn't be till after he passed from the scene that things would happen. And I love that about God. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23 now. It says, Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Notice that his inclination was not just to keep it for himself. He wanted to read it before the people because they needed to be broken just like he did. And when he read that, that law to them, the, the five books of Moses. Think about that. He read that to them. And their hearts broke. And then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. Wow, this is amazing. This guy's on fire. And to, to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And notice, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. Oh, I wish the, America would stand up for the word of God. That the church even would stand up for the word of God. Not necessarily you all here because you love the Lord and you're a different breed here. But there are churches that don't teach the word of God. They don't care about the word of God. They're more interested in, in everything else, that, you know, everything but the word of God. Would the God that America, the church in America would stand up for the word of God? Let me tell you, if they did, it'd be an amazing thing. Our country would be very different if the church was doing what a church should do. And I'm not just saying you guys, okay? It may not have anything to do with you at all, but I'm talking about the church in totality. Because good, godly leadership encourages people to follow, and they were following Josiah. He made that covenant, and they followed him. And they, he was a, a great man. And they're like, we're going to follow this guy. He's doing the right things. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, verse 4, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, remember that Canaanite female deity of fertility, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned those articles outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you see the Kidron Valley, and this is where they burned all this stuff. He took it out there, and he carried it out there, and he burned it, and then he carried the ashes to Bethel. And then he removed, verse 5, the idolatrous priests, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem, and those who burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations, to all the host of heaven. They were worshiping all of these Assyrian gods, all of these different gods. And he brought out the wooden image, this Asherah, from the house of the Lord. It was in the house of the Lord. Can you believe it? This wooden, idolatrous image 
in the house of the Lord. He took it outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron, and ground it to ashes, and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. And then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. So they would have these tents where these male prostitutes would literally engage in sexual activity. And this is how they worship God in these tents, that these women would make coverings to cover them. And they would do these lewd, awful, twisted, weird things in there. And yet, there are Christian churches... Not too far away from here, actually. Who embrace homosexuality. Who embrace heterosexual fornication. God's a God of love. It's okay. No, it's not okay. (laughs) It's not okay. When you read this, what do you think about it? I mean, there's plenty of scriptures. We could go there, but we don't have time. But God is not for any of those things. Does he love the people? Yes, you better believe he loves the people. But... He hates the sin. Whether you're a heterosexual fornicator or whether you're a homosexual fornicator, you must repent. You must repent or you will suffer the judgment of God if you do not. Oh, don't say that. That's not politically correct. I could care less. (laughs) I could care less. I'd rather be faithful to God and faithful to his word and upset a million people, actually quite a few million people. I don't care. Because God loves them, and they need to know that God loves them. And see, church, we have to remember that God loves them. He loves them. Just like he loves the heterosexual, the male and the female living in sin, he loves them too. He loves the homosexual. He doesn't love their lifestyle and the sin that they're doing, but he loves them. And yet the church can treat people like that, especially the homosexual community. why, Why should we treat them different? Some churches do. Some Christians do. They may know somebody in church who's living together and having intimacy with one another doesn't bother them so much. But, oh, talk about somebody who's sleeping with another, you know, a man with a man or a woman with a woman, and then all of a sudden they get incense. And it's like, where's your head? Where has your head been all this time? You should have been speaking to those people, the heterosexual couple. You should have been talking to them. Don't just pick favorites. If we do that, then we become like what the world thinks we are, right? And shame on us for that. The room got really quiet. I wonder how many of you are going to meet me out by my car when we're finished. You guys are going to be out there with pitchforks and we're going to take care of you, Kellogg. <laughs> well, I can run pretty fast, so... But notice, and he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. These are just um, uh, geographical markers. And also he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. And do you notice how specific it is? Some people think, well, the Bible is just an allegory. It's just a made-up story. Well, there's very specific details in here. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, look at that. Even broke down the high places at the gates, which are at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. That was something at that time, which were to the left of the city gate. Very specific, very extremely specific locations of things. Remember that. Because God, this is all true. 
and even archaeology is proving this stuff as we go. It's, it's wonderful. I love it. When they find a rock or uh, some kind of thing in the dirt, you know, over in Israel, and it, and it just proves, you know, it, it, it just verifies what we knew to be true all along. Anyway, nevertheless, verse 9, the priests of the high places, they did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. And notice, and he defiled Josiah, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man may make his son or his daughter pass through the fire. And that image that you see on the screen is, is, the, is where they would have at the southern end of Mount Zion, where David's palace was, not the temple, but David's palace, the southern end of that, around the end, was a trash heap. And this is where they would have this idol set up, and they would heat it, and you've heard me say this before it's horrible and they would they would burn children postpartum on those altars to these false deities and and that one is Molech and and so they would do this and God was furious about this and so he defiled Topheth Josiah did which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech And yet they did this. Even kings did this. Ahaz did this. And then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court. Again, very specific info. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The king broke those down and pulverized there and and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. This guy was like a wrecking ball. He was going through all of Jerusalem, all around Jerusalem, and he was just tearing everything up to pieces. And God was just, (laughs) love this young man. (laughs) He was doing the right things. Those things shouldn't even have been there. And now God had touched his heart. Kind of like Gideon. I love the heart of Gideon. Read Judges chapter 7 and see what he did to his father's altar. God loves young men and women who have the courage to stand up for him, to do the right things, to be examples, to keep their vessels pure. He loves people like that. And so then the king, 13, verse 13, he defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abominations of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Remember, Solomon had many wives, and so he built all these pagan altars for all of his wives. And his wives led him away from the Lord. So why, didn't we read earlier that God told that whenever a king began that he wasn't supposed to multiply wives to himself? And what did Solomon do? He did exactly the opposite, and he paid the price. Now thank God later in his life he understood, and he came back to his senses. In verse 14, he broke the pieces in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images, filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar, which was at Bethel, and the high place 
which Jeroboam, excuse me, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down. He burned the high place and crushed it to powder, burned the wooden image, and Josiah turned, and this is interesting, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. And then he said, what gravestone is this that I see? And so the men of the city told him, and they said, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things, which you have done against the altar in Bethel. And he said, let him alone and let no one move his bones. And so they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now you may be wondering what this is about, and I would encourage you to write in the margin of your Bible a reference, and you can read it. And I'll read just a few verses of it, but it's 1 Kings chapter 13. And um, it's a wonderful prophecy about Josiah, and it was given about 300 years before he was even born. And God named him by name 300 years before he was even born. And this is not unusual. God did it for Cyrus, a pagan king. And God did this for Josiah because remember, and it was during the the time in 1 Kings chapter 13, that was a time when Jeroboam, Israel's first king, had made the two molten calves, remember, and made two centers of worship, one in the northern part in Dan in in Israel and the other one in uh, Bethel uh, in in the other part. And um, they were centers of worship. And it says in 1 Kings 13, it says, Behold, a man of God. Here it is. This is the man of God that 300 years later that we're reading about now that Josiah inquired about. And can you imagine? Well, let's just read it. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. He wasn't supposed to do it. It was the altar of the golden calf. And then he cried out, this, this, this prophet cried out to the, um, by the altar, by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. So this altar in Bethel, Josiah comes and he, he sees this, this grave and he inquires, Who's this? whose grave is this? That's the man of God back in 1 Kings 13, 300 years ago, Josiah. Oh, and by the way, he spoke about you. The very thing you're doing right now, God told him. God told him 300 years prior. What? See, he didn't have... I don't know if they had the, chron- the, the kings, like we have it now, but all they had, I mean, it, it might have been written down somewhere, we really don't know. But can you imagine being Josiah? <laughs> and say, this is the man of God who told that you were going to do this, that you, Josiah, before you were born, 300 years ago, he called you by name, that you were going to do this. Can you imagine the thrush of energy that would be? How did he know that I would be doing this? He must be, he must be God. He must live outside of time. He must know the end from the beginning. He must be the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning. Well, of course he is. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. He's got, he knows exactly what's going to happen three, three days from now. He knows what's going to happen to you a month from now. He knows where you're going to be. He knows the thoughts that you think before you think him. Oh my goodness, could this really be who we're serving? Yes, it is. 
Doesn't that lift your heart in wonder and in awe? Think of how he felt. I mean, wouldn't that blow your mind? You're doing something one day and somebody comes and says, oh, I, gotta, I can't believe this is happening. I just read this this morning in my Bible. Rob, what you're doing today, God said he called you by name 300 years ago. He spoke that you were doing You've got to be kidding me. No, the very same thing that you're doing. I would probably pass out. Do we serve a God that wonderful who knows? Oh, yeah. He's much bigger and wonderful than all of that, even still. Everybody smile. Isn't it wonderful? I love it. I love it. So now, verse 19, now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. Did you know you can provoke the Lord to anger? Do you want to provoke the Lord to anger? I don't. So Josiah took all the shrines, I said that, he provoked the Lord to anger, and he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. So, oh my goodness, I don't think I'm going to be able to finish all this. You know what, let's save the rest of this for next week. Um... And I don't regret that at all because I love talking about Josiah. So we'll look. Um, uh, this is probably the earliest I've stopped. It's actually almost time to stop. So um, lest we go for another 15 or 20 minutes and I uh, uh, provoke you to anger. <laughs> We're going to stop right here and we'll get into this next week. But again, I, uh, be encouraged by all of this. One of the things that I, I really love, even in the midst of the Old Testament, and, and people think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. He's, he's the same. Do you, do you, can you see that? I hope, and I, hopefully I've pointed out as we've gone through the Old Testament. You know, we started in Deuteronomy, and here we are in 2 Kings. And I hope that I was able to show you the grace and the love of God, even in the Old Testament, who people have the stigma that God is just this angry God who just all these laws, all these rules and regulations, come on, man, just let me live. You know, and people have this idea, you just, oh, just restricted by all the laws and restrictions, and they get all bound up and hate God. Well, did you see the grace of God in those passages? Did you see how God was gracious to Aaron? When he made the molten calf, did he deserve to be smoked in the dust at the, at, in an instant? Of course he did. Did God do it? Did, God, did, did David deserve to die when he committed adultery with a man's wife and then had his, her husband killed to cover up her pregnancy? Did he deserve to get snuffed out? Yes. Did God snuff him out? No. God is plenteous in grace and mercy. Don't ever forget that. He's no different than the God of the New Testament. Same God. Don't ever confuse the two. He's the same. Is he serious? Yes, he is. Is he serious about justice and righteousness? Yes. Is he serious about grace and forgiveness? Yes. How does he do it all? Keep it in balance? He's perfect. God is perfect. Me, not so much. Actually, me, not at all. But he is perfect and righteous and just in all that he does. Let your heart get carried away with that and learn to love him even more than you do. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray.
Uh, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this man. Lord, I'm so encouraged. Lord, at the darkest hour, at a very dark hour in Israel's history, and I think of our own dark hour that we live in now, Lord, would you raise up a Josiah? Not that we need a man, but Lord, you can do whatever you want. We know that our Joshua is coming. We know that there's a time coming, Lord, where you're going to come for the church. We know that. And Lord, that's what we're really longing for more than anything else. But Lord, until then, would you raise up many Josiahs in this country, men and women who stand up for truth, to stand up for righteousness, Lord, for those things that are good, Lord, would you do that? Would you make us, Lord, Josiah's tonight? Would you give us pure hearts? Would you give us hearts after your own? And Lord, help us to forget about everything else, to be sold out for you, Jesus. Would you do that work in each of us, Lord? And Lord, help us not to remember, our, Lord, our past and the things that we've done wrong. Lord, we have this propensity, as you know, to go back through the, the grave clothes and, and search through the things that you've already forgiven us. And we continually beat ourselves up over past sins, and yet we've confessed them, and you have forgotten them, and yet we try to dig them up again. Lord, would you help us to forget those things that are past and move on forward and not let them restrict us any longer? Set us free, Lord, by your spirit. We thank you for this um, example of this godly man. Make us godly men and women whom you could say there's no one like him or her. They're wonderful. And Lord, you see us that way, perfected in Christ, even now. But Lord, help us, practically speaking, to live up now to those things. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a good evening.